going to read from Romans 8, verses 18 to 27. And it should also be on the screen as well. And I'm reading from the NIV UK version. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that I always appreciate about the Bible, the message of Christianity, is how honest and realistic it is about suffering. The Bible never minimizes suffering. The Bible never pretends that you're not going to suffer. But what it does is it gives us resources, or you might say a perspective, by which we can face suffering. Life is hard. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. And what the Bible does is it's both honest about the reality of life's hardships and also giving us a perspective that enables us to face anything. And that's what you see in verse 18 of our passage. Paul says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. That word consider, in older versions of the Bible, it was translated reckon. It's an accounting word. It means to add up, to do the math. It's where we actually get our word logic. And what Paul's saying is suffering is real. And yet there's a perspective that if you grasp it, if you reckon, if you add it up, if you consider it, will make whatever you're facing today, even the great suffering that you're bearing, feel light in comparison to the glory that's coming. And so that's what I'm interested in today. What truths in these verses can Paul give us that if we grasp them can make even the most profound suffering feel light in comparison to what's coming? That's what we're looking at today. Three things to see in this passage to help us get that. First, Paul says something about what a Christian is. Second, he gives us some hope for the future. And then third, help in the present. So what a Christian is, hope for our future, and help in our present. Let's take a look. First, what is a Christian? Now come with me back to verse 18, the very beginning of the passage. Paul says, our present suffering is not worth comparing with future glory. What's interesting is that suffering and glory in this passage 
are not simply two experiences, two things that happen to a person. Sometimes I suffer, sometimes I feel glory. That's true. But suffering and glory in the book of Romans are not experiences, they're ages. They're periods of time. You might call them two eras. And throughout the book of Romans, when you see the word suffering or when you see the word glory, Paul's saying there's two time periods that exist. There's the time period of suffering and there's the time period of glory. Now, on one hand, we know that we live in the time period of suffering. We experience suffering. It's not hard to feel that. But in verse 30, we didn't read it today, but we'll talk about it more next week. In verse 30 of the passage, Paul says a Christian is someone who's already glorified, already glorified, which means somehow the future glory has already broken into the present. Now, what does this mean? A Christian is someone who lives in the overlap between suffering and glory. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live in both time periods, to, if you would, be straddling between future glory and present suffering. It's not just suffering and it's not just glory, but it's both all the time. That is what a Christian experiences. We see that in verse 23. Let me just show you a little more. Verse 23 of our passage, Paul says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Pause there. First fruits is an agricultural word. It's to do with farming. If you were a farmer and you expected a harvest, the first fruit was literally the first fruit of your crop. And when you had your first fruit, you were filled with joy because the first fruit was a piece of the future coming into the present. It was the guarantee that more goodness is coming. And Paul says, we, if you're a Christian, you have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning God is already in you and working through you. His work is already being accomplished. If you're a Christian here today, you have the first fruits, the guarantee, the presence of the Spirit. Let me give you an example. Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those of you who grew up singing the song in kids' church knew the answer. The fruit of the Spirit. So just like fruit on a tree, if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, these things come out of your life. Now, which of us in honesty wouldn't look at that list and say, you know, I definitely could be growing in love, I could be growing in joy, I could be more patient, more self-controlled, more gentle, and so on. All of us would say 100% we could grow, we could do better. But here's my question. If you're a Christian here today, as you look back on your Christian journey, today, are you at least a little bit more loving or a little bit more patient or a little more gentle or a little more kind than you used to be? And if you can answer yes, do you know why you can? It's because it's the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is already at work in your life. The Spirit is accomplishing his purposes. And what Paul's saying, if you have the first fruits, it's the guarantee that more is coming. In other words, glory is what you're destined for, in which the fruit of the Spirit is fully realized and experienced. So Paul says, you, if you're a Christian, you have the first fruit of the Spirit. God's already at work, and the work he's begun, he's going to complete it. Glory is coming. 
But then look, same verse, 23. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, and yet we groan inwardly as we're waiting for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our body. I hope you feel the force of this irony, the paradox. A Christian has the first fruit of the Spirit. Glory is coming. God's working in your life. Change is happening. And we groan. Groan's a good word, isn't it? When was the last time you let out a good groan? Groaning is what you do when you don't have the words to match your sadness. Groaning is what you do when you encounter a world that you know is not as it should be. When the pain or the confusion of your suffering is so deep that you can't find words to express what you're feeling, you groan. And John Stott, who pastored in London in the middle part of the 20th century, when he was reading and writing about this passage, said, you know, there's always two reasons why we groan, our fallen nature and our fragile bodies. Our fallen nature, it's our sin. You see, sin is selfishness. It's putting self in the place of God. And every single time we sin, we bring suffering into our life. It couldn't be otherwise. Think about it this way. If you have a car, you know that it runs on petrol or diesel. And if you said, well, you know, I'm just so over petrol, I'm gonna put olive oil in my car to make it run. Well, what would happen? The car would break down because that car was built to run on petrol. And no matter how much you love your olive oil, it's not gonna run on it. Your heart was made for God. Your heart was made by God. And anytime, every time you as a person turn away from him and say, I'm gonna satisfy myself, I'm gonna get an identity, I'm gonna get my sense of meaning from something other than God, the only thing that can happen is breakdown and suffering. So Stott says one of the reasons we suffer are fallen nature, sin. But the other is what you might call our fragile bodies. We just live in a world that's broken. There's lots of suffering that we experience that is not the result of one person's sin, but is just part of the reality of living in a broken world. And you know that. Many of you are living in that today, this morning. Profound, deep, heartbreaking suffering just because we live in a world That's not as it should be. And so we groan. Paul says, that is what a Christian is. Someone who lives right in the overlap between suffering and glory. The first fruits of the spirit and groaning. So what's an implication? I can't tell you how many people I've talked to as a pastor. Some of you here today are feeling this. People I've talked to have said something like, you know, I became a Christian, I started trusting in God, and all of a sudden my life got so much harder. And they're discouraged and they wanna say, what's the deal? I thought that when I became a Christian or started following God, my life was gonna get easier, my life was gonna get better. And the opposite has happened. Romans 8 tells us that Christians are those who should expect suffering and shouldn't be surprised by it because we live in the overlap between suffering and glory. So one of the things that this passage forces us to reckon with is the fact that just because you're a follower of God doesn't mean your life's gonna be easy. And I would go so far as to say, actually, when you become a Christian, sometimes your life gets a bit harder. There's elements of spiritual warfare that are part of that. There's also the denial of yourself. 
in the way of Jesus. There's so many reasons, but Paul's helping us realize that suffering is not a sign that God is displeased with you. Christians are those who know glory is coming, but suffering is in my present, and we live in the overlap, the tension between the two. And so we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. We should, in fact, expect it. That's where a Christian lives. That's what a Christian is, living in that tension between suffering and glory. But Paul, in this passage, is not just saying, well, that's what a Christian is. That's where a Christian lives. But he wants to give us now hope and help. That's where we are. But what hope do we have and what help is there for our future? So let's talk first about hope and our future. The word hope appears five times in this passage. It's one of the themes, and it's a big theme. Verse 24 says, in this hope, you were saved. Hope is what saved us. So what is this hope that he's talking about? Well, he mentions it in verse 23. Our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption is our hope. The thing that a Christian ought to be hoping in is redemption. And so let's just spend a few minutes unpacking what is this redemption that we ought to be hoping for. You can call it comprehensive and physical. The redemption that you want, the redemption that I need, the redemption that God's going to bring about, it's comprehensive and it's physical. So first, what do I mean by comprehensive? Do you notice how verses 19 through 22 of the passage are all about creation? Paul's talking about the natural world, the material world. He's thinking of bodies and trees and mountains and rivers and the earth. And all of the passage is about how way back in the book of Genesis, when our first parents rebelled against God, what happened was the world started to break. So think of it this way. In the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were put, where they lived, the world was perfect. Like literally creation itself was perfect. And then they turned their back on God and they said, we're going to do things our own way. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 18, God says to Adam, because of your rebellion, because of your sin, cursed is the ground because of you. Now thorns and thistles will come up from the earth. Do you know what God's saying? There was a time where roses didn't have thorns, but now they do. Because of sin's impact, the rebellion of human beings against God brought a kind of curse or a brokenness into all of creation. And whether or not you and I fully think and realize this, if we fully think about it, that original fall, that original rebellion is the source of so much of our pain. When bodies break down and don't work as they should, when waves get too big and wash away villages, or the earth shakes and buildings fall, That's because of creation being subject to decay. The world is breaking down. The world is not as it should be. Paul says redemption is coming. And the hope of the Christian, the hope of the people of God, is that one day all of creation, literally all the cosmos, are going to be healed. So you have to use your imagination a little bit. Psalm 96, Psalm 98 says that when the king comes, when the kingdom of God is established, the mountains are gonna sing, the trees are gonna dance, and rivers are gonna clap their hands. You say, oh, that's just poetry. Our imaginations are too small. 
the world is gonna be healed. The world is gonna come back to life. That's why in Isaiah, when the picture is given of the coming kingdom, it says lions and lambs lay down together. Creation's gonna be fully healed and peaceful. The world's not gonna be an adversary or an enemy. It's gonna be healed. God's redemption is comprehensive. It's gonna touch everything. And it's not just comprehensive, it's also physical. Physical, what does Paul say? The redemption of our bodies. Your body. Now, what's interesting, if you were here last week, do you see in verse 23, just stay with me for a second. Paul says, we're eagerly waiting for our adoption to sonship. But if you were here last week, didn't we say that Christians are those who are already adopted? So why is now Paul saying in just a few verses later, you are adopted, that's verses 15 through 17, and you're waiting for an adoption. But you know the deal, especially if you ever bought on a flat. There's a difference between the exchange and completion, isn't there? When you exchange, you're legally bound to that property, but you're not fully living in it. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, you are adopted. You have a status as the child of God, but you are waiting to experience the fullness of it. And what will be the fullness? The redemption of your body. You see, the hope of the Christian is not just that we have sin forgiven and that we get to float around on clouds like a ghost forever. The redemption that God is bringing about is a physical one in which bodies themselves are gonna be healed. And you are gonna have a glorified, perfect body in which you will live not on clouds, but in a city, the city of God forever. God's redemption will be comprehensive and it will be physical. So what are some implications of that? Let me just draw out a couple of ideas to help us apply this, what this means for us today. The first is this. If it's true that God's redeeming work, what he's gonna bring about in the future is comprehensive and physical redemption, that means today, Christians should care about creation. Christians should care about this world. We should be those who care about our lived environment. Because when we pray like we did in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth, even it is in heaven, well, God's gonna fix in his kingdom, he's gonna fix everything. So we should be getting to work on that now. You can say creation care is a discipleship mandate if you're a follower of Jesus. Second, not just creation care, but Christians should be those who fight against injustice. You see, what is injustice if it's not oppression of bodies? But if God is about renewing and redeeming and bringing about the full redemption of our physicality, then that means Christians should be fighting against any kind of injustice which oppresses or marginalizes bodies and communities of people. So we should want to feed the hungry. We should want to provide shelter for those who are without home. We should want to create spaces of safety for those who are fleeing war and violence. I mean, we should be the most passionate in our city at protecting bodies and fighting for justice because that's our ultimate redemption. And third, not just care for creation, not just fighting against injustice, but the third implication, the great enemy has been defeated. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is our great enemy. And if you're a Christian here today, what this passage means is that when you stand face to face with your greatest enemy, you know that he's already been defeated. 
You can sing, as the hymn says, death is but your entrance into glory. So courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. And death, as you know, those of you who've experienced it close, a family member or friend, and for all of us in our future, it's coming. And one of the promises that God gives us is that when we walk even through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil. Because what's coming on the other side of death is not just life, but glorified life. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes the body that we get to have in glory, he says it's even like Jesus' glorified body, which means when Jesus rose from the dead, he looked like he did. He, people recognized him. They're like, whoa, that's you, but you look different. We'll be our true selves, but not subject to decay, not subject to brokenness, and in a world in which we never have to say goodbye. Death is the great interrupter and it takes from us the things that we love the most unless Jesus is the defeater of death. And so you see, we could spend more time unfolding the implications, but Paul's trying to say, look, if you believe in the redemption that Jesus is gonna bring about, then you have profound hope for the future because everything is gonna be healed and you're gonna be safe. Like the best is yet to come and everything sad is gonna come untrue. Paul says, do you know that? Are you eagerly awaiting that redemption? You say, well, I want to, but my life right now is really hard. So it's good to have hope for the future, but what about today? And Paul says, finally, well, there's help we have in the present. It's not just as glorious as our hope is, but there's also help in the present. That is what verse 26 is about. But before we get there, Jesus, when he was just about to leave, when he was just about to ascend into heaven, the night before his death, he said to his disciples, I'm leaving, and it's actually better for you if I go. And the disciples were perplexed, like how, what could be better than Jesus with us? And Jesus says, I'm gonna send you my spirit. Verse 23, this is of, uh, sorry, this is John chapter 14. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth. Jesus is saying, I'm going, but I'm gonna send my spirit and that's gonna be better for you than even if I stayed because the spirit will dwell inside you to help you. Now that's what Paul's building on. So come in our passage to verse 26. It's fascinating. Verse 26, Paul says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. So let's think out the implications of this for a second. First, there's a lot of freedom in admitting that you're weak. One of the articles, one of the essays that's helped me profoundly in my spiritual life by Richard Bauckham, he used to teach New Testament at St. Andrews. And he has an article on weakness in the New Testament. He says, you know, weakness is not sinfulness. Like our weakness is not because we're sinful. Our weakness is because we're human. Weakness is not a deficiency, it's a recognition of your humanity. We are weak because we are people. We are weak because we're not God. And Paul says, throughout your life, and especially in seasons of suffering, you become acutely aware of your weakness. You become very aware that you don't have the wisdom or the strength to face all the things that are coming. 
I mean, how many of you just, as you look down the road in your near future, find yourself facing things that you're not sure how you're gonna handle? It's because you're weak. It's because I'm weak. But Paul says, in our weakness, there's help for us. It's help from the Spirit. And that word help, it literally means to carry a burden. If you saw me today later on moving some of the equipment off our stage and I was just carrying too much and you said, wow, that looks so heavy for Bijan and you ran over and you grabbed the other side, you would be doing literally what the Holy Spirit is meant to do for us. Helping, bearing a burden, shouldering the load, making it lighter for me. That's what Paul says the Spirit does. He comes into your life to lighten your burden, to carry your load. How does he do it? Paul says, keep with me, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The way in which we experience the help of the Spirit is through his prayer, through his intercession, that he's actually pleading on our behalf, praying for us. Why? Because we don't know what to pray for. No matter how consistent and rich your prayer life is, I bet all of us would acknowledge that we could do a little bit better with praying. It's an area of weakness. We get too distracted. We get bored. We don't think prayer is powerful enough. And sometimes we just don't know what to pray for. And when you're suffering, when you go through really hard seasons of life, you often don't know what to ask God to be doing or accomplishing or bringing about in your situation. I remember years ago praying and pleading and saying to God, please, I was, it was an opportunity that I wanted, I thought I was ready for, just begging God, open the door. And I look back and I'm so glad that God did not answer my prayer. Can you look back at your life and see any areas of prayers that you had where you say, I'm so, what a mercy it was that God didn't give me what I was asking for? Because we don't always know what to pray for. We can't see around the corner. We're not wise enough. My old pastor used to say that in prayer, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. But the good news is that's exactly what the Spirit is doing. You see, I pray and I come to God with my requests and my hopes and my desires and the spirit takes that and he's the best editor in the history of the world. And he says to God, the father, Bijan is asking for this, but what he really means is this. And he smooths out our prayer and he brings it perfectly. Verse 27, prayers that are in perfect accordance with the will of God. So that what this means, my help for the present is one who is perfect and who perfectly knows the will and the heart of God the Father is taking my jumbled, confusing, mysterious prayers and he's smoothing them out and saying, this is what he means. You know what this does? <laughs> this brings tremendous freedom and assurance in prayer. Because if you pray like everything depends on you, you're gonna be filled with restlessness and anxiety. But if you pray with an assurance, if you come to God with an assurance, that even when you get it wrong, even when you ask for the wrong things or you don't know what to pray for, or you're too tired or you're too distracted, the spirit is interceding. That produces all kinds of freedom. That produces all kinds of rest. And so we can cry out to God in prayer, 
bringing everything to him. Why? Because he's actually the one carrying us in prayer, interceding. This is the rest. This is the hope that you can have. And how do we know that this is true? Why is it that the spirit can intercede on our behalf? Because Jesus already did. You see, on the night before Jesus died, he was literally our great intercessor, praying to the Father. And then as our great high priest, he surrenders himself to the cross and says, not my will, but God, yours be done. And he gives himself over in sacrifice. And because he gives himself up for us, we can run to God in prayer at any time with any request. And the spirit says, yep, Bishan's asking for it again, but what he really means is, and he smooths it out. God hears and God answers, giving me exactly what I would ask for if I knew everything that he knew. And I'm safe and there's peace and I can rest. So today, if you feel like wordless groans, I don't know what to say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm too burdened, I just don't have the words. Rest because the spirit does. And the spirit is interceding for you. I'll close with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was writing about this passage, put it this way. He says, when we are in such trouble that we cannot find the words, we cannot express our feelings except in wordless groanings, God knows exactly what's happening. He says, I know of nothing which gives greater comfort and consolation than this realization, that the faintest whisper in the heart of man is known to God. So even if it should be so faint to sigh that you yourself are not even aware, he has heard it. There's nothing which he does not hear. Nothing is too faint for him. So commend thy cause to him because his ear attends even the softest prayer. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you hear us and that even in our prayer, you are interceding. That when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, you do. And by the power of your spirit, you are carrying us. And so today, help us to rest. Some of us are groaning deeply. The burdens that we're facing, the suffering that we're experiencing, it's too heavy for us. So help us to rest today in you. Help us to experience the kind of freedom and peace that comes from those who know we are safe and that we have hope, hope in a future of full, complete, comprehensive redemption. May that promise break into our present today and lift us and give us courage to face whatever's coming. So be with us now in this time of response. Meet us powerfully by your spirit as we pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen.